Okay, y'all, for the next three weeks, we are going to look at who we are, our lifeblood, Redeemer's lifeblood. We're going to talk about some things, some concepts here that are going to be just concepts. They're going to sound really good because, you know, they're nice phrases that I like to turn a phrase and put them together of who we are. Uh, we're going to do that. We're going to look at the proposition. But then we're going to look at an image in the text. And the image is actually going to be what gives the proposition life. Here's how we're going to begin. It was the most fortified mountain in the history of the world. Did you know that? Which, what mountain would that be? Mountain Siribachi on Iwo Jima. Seven stories of subterranean world filled with 2,000 Japanese soldiers armed to the teeth with every conceivable killing machine on the planet, whether it's a 50 cal or it's an anti-aircraft gun. All these guns from 2,000 soldiers in a subterranean fortress inside a mountain were waiting for the Americans. And they had months and months to prepare, months and months to put every force they had, every killing machine they had with pinpoint accuracy on the front territory in front of the mountain to cover every square inch of dirt and every piece of rock on that front terrain. When the Americans landed, their plan was real simple. We're going to take infantry and we're going to charge the mountain behind the steel of tanks. The problem is the tanks never made it. Most of them sank in the invasion, the initial landing, and those that didn't got stuck in the sand and the anti-aircraft just blew them to pieces as sitting ducks. So when Colonel Liversidge made this harrowing decision, he commands, attack without the tanks, crackles over the radio of everyone on that beach. Every man there knew what that mean. Author James Bradley of Flags of Our Fathers records what happens next. An electric current of pure terror pulsed through the regiment. The Marines could see there were no tanks in the field. No tanks, no large bulky shapes to protect the boys against fire from pillboxes as they ran. No tanks, nothing but bodies against bullets. A certainty of death filled the air. A ja no jaunty war cries came from the veterans, just a pang of utter hopelessness. Those who were there said, quote, Running across that terrain in front of Mount Sarabachi and not getting hit with a bullet or a piece of shrapnel was like running in a thunderstorm and not getting hit with a drop of rain. That's why Lieutenant Keith Wells, he had been with his men for two years, two years of living with them, training with them, doing life with them. He knew their wives, he knew their kids. He knew their cars, he knew their girlfriends, he knew their birthdays, he knew their dreams, and he knew their nightmares. So when the order crackled over the radio, he just hung his head. He couldn't give the order. These were his brothers. He loved them. So he silently stands up and charges Sarabachi all alone in their place. Do you know what his men did? They followed him there. This is who he is. 
John Newton, we all know the famous hymn writer, Amazing Grace, former slave trader. He preached and pastored up to the end of his life in 1807. In 1806, his health was failing him, and so his friend Richard Cecil pleaded with him to discontinue his ministry, discontinue your preaching. We call that what today? Retirement. Newton said, I cannot stop. What? Shall an old African blasphemer stop while he can still speak? This is who he is. And then, of course, there's Rocky. And Rocky, I don't know what, 20? Right? Coming out of retirement to fight against. My favorite line in the whole movie. You remember what he says? Or I don't know if he said it or the daughter said it or the son said it. And they said, fighters, fight. That's what they do. This is who he is. Who are we? Who are we? Who is Redeemer? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, 
and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we, um, this is a passage we ask that you would actualize. Would you shine on the page? Would you give and grant what it says? Would you, would you speak? And would our bones rattle? And would breath come into us? And would we stand an exceedingly great army? We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so who are we? I'm going to give you the proposition. Here it comes. It's going to roll right off my tongue. We are a growing gospel movement. We are a center church for gospel renewal in Central Texas. Why Central Texas? Because that's where we are. But also, did you know that 80% of the population of Texas lives within 200 miles of Waco, Texas? That's pretty significant. I know this is being taped. I'm not advocating this. I would never advocate this. But if, let's say for one, let's just say hypothetically, Texas was to succeed from the union, <laughs> we'd be the third largest military, economic GNP, gross national product in the world, just us. Just a little Texas pride there, right? Amen. Yeah, amen. All right. Whatever, I knew Brent would be in on this, because Brent, yes, yes. Whatever all this means, being a center, an anchor church, an anchor church where we're self-sustaining and we're producing the resources to actually uh, see gospel growth and people accelerate throughout Central Texas, um, whatever that means, you know what it means? It means we are about one thing. Who are you? Who are we? We are about the gospel. We are about the gospel. We are a one-trick pony. We're not a five-ring spiritual circus. We got one trick. We got one comfort. We got one thing that we're hanging everything on, and that's the gospel. Luther in his Galatians commentary says it this way, if this gospel is lost, then also is lost all knowledge of truth, life, and salvation. All true Christianity is lost. The church is lost. If this gospel flourishes, then all good things flourish, and all things good that flourish, we're calling gospel renewal. In other words, gospel renewal is the flourishing that happens when gospel growth and people takes place. It's the renewal that happens, the flourishing, when we experience Jesus and his salvation afresh and anew again and again in all of life. But the question always is, after 18, 19, 20 years, is it 20? What is it? We've been here 20 years to plant this church. Some of you I see have been here since the very beginning. Others of you have just come in today. Uh, the question always remains, and I get it often, and I get it frequently, and I get it from other traditions, and I get it when I'm at church planning places, and I get it when I'm at Bible places, and I get it when I'm at places that are wanting to take seriously the culture and the gospel. But is the gospel enough? Is it enough? Is experiencing Jesus and his salvation afresh and anew, again and again, in all of life, 
enough for you, enough for your loved ones, enough for the church, enough for your children, enough for your neighbor, enough for your neighborhood, enough for the city, enough for Central Texas, enough for the world? The answer is, it depends. It depends on your view of valleys and bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. There's Ishmael. There's the bones of Cecilia. There's the bones of Tanner. There's the bones of Hezekiah. There's the bones of Luke. There's the bones of, there's the bones of, it took a while. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were really dry. God takes Ezekiel to a valley somewhere in Babylon because that's where Israel is in exile after being annihilated by the Babylonians. Valleys in the Bible are never good places. They're bad places. They're dark places. Psalm 23 describes the valley literally as a valley of deep, deep darkness. King James says, the shadow of death. Valleys in the Bible are God-forsaken places. These are places that God is absent. These are places that God does not show up in. In the Bible, God shows up in mountains, high places. Think the Garden of Eden in a mountain. Think of Moses. Think of Elijah, all on a mountain. God never shows up in valleys. Man, even the gods in the ancient world got that. Their gods intervened in human affairs, blessed human affairs, gave fertility, gave life, power, success, visions, not in low places, but in high places. Don't miss this. Ezekiel says, the Lord set me down in the middle of the valley. So we're in the middle of the valley, which means we are in the lowest place in the valley, which means it is the lowest place in the planet as far as land is concerned. So valleys are places of darkness, they're places of emptiness, they're places of nothingness. In other words, they're places of active death, which is why verse 1 says, it was full of bones everywhere you look. In the ancient Near East, when a weaker nation broke its treaty or its covenant with a larger nation, like the superpower of the day, like Israel did with Babylon, the superpower would come and break you slaughter you, men, women, children, it didn't matter if you were a non-combatant, there was no such thing in those days. Civilian, soldier, what is that? This is war. Then they scatter you when they slaughter you. They scatter you over the surface of the ground. If you're in a valley, the better. They let you rot until nothing is left of you but bone. Why? 
For the same reason that notorious pirates, when they would take a ship or they would, they would invade a city, a port city, the reason why they would only leave one person alive, why? To tell the tale. The Valley of Bones is a monument to this is what happens to you if you mess with us. Forsake all hope here. There is none. All Ezekiel can say when he's in this valley is, dang, there are a lot of bones. And they're really dry. It's like they're just about to return to the dust again. Very dry means they've been dead a long time. There's no flesh hanging off them. There's no ligaments connecting the tissue or the bones together. There's no tissue anywhere. In other words, in this valley, there is not one scrap of life present. Life has left the valley. So is the gospel enough? Is the gospel enough for us? Is the gospel enough for you, for your loved one, for your neighbor, for the city, for Central Texas, for pastors, for churches, for communities? It depends. It depends on your view of valleys and bones. What God asked Ezekiel after the bone tour, he's asking Israel. And by extension, because we have opened the scripture, right now God is asking you and me, can these bones live? Can your bones live, God says. That's the next thing that happens. He takes the bone tour, pulls Ezekiel aside, verse 3, son of man, can these bones live? Can your child live? Can your neighbor live? Can this city live? Can this church live? Can these bones live? The most common way we try to answer this question is by doing some kind of spiritual math or spiritual calculation, don't we? And we all do this. I do this, you do this. So no one's singled out here. Let's just all say we do this. And so what we do is we divide people. We come and interact with somebody or we divide them into good bones and bad bones. Don't we? For instance, we do things like, well, do they come from a healthy family or a broken family? Are they religious or are they a secularist? Postmodernist, relativist, no truth but my truthist. Are they a conservative or a liberal? Are they neighborly or are they just a jerk? Do they watch porn? Are they engaged in same-sex attractions? Do they do drugs? Do their kids go to church? Are they attractive? Are they successful? Are they lazy? Are they on food stamps? Is there mental illness in their family? And what's so fascinating about this story is, y'all, the text won't let us do that. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. The ones slaughtered, 
and the ones right now in exile. In other words, Ezekiel, these are the good people bones, the Bible-believing bones, the praying bones, the serious-about-God bones, the family-values bones. Because there's one driving image. This is called apocalyptic literature, so time out. What does that mean? This is what it means. Sometimes the Bible says, I could just tell you something, and that small minority of people that really like intellectual engagement will get it. The rest of you won't. Or what I can do is I can give you an image that's just as powerful as a proposition, but in a more subtle way. It kind of goes into your, the image goes, it bypasses the mind really, really quick. It goes through the mind and hits the emotions first. But while it does so, it's turning around and it's grabbing your thinking with it. And so by a real sneaky way, the image captures your thinking by capturing your feeling first and then reaching your heart. So I could say this is the universal human condition and said that right from the beginning. This is what we're all like, everybody, period. Or we could say, what does the valley say? What do the bones say? And the valley says, and the bones say, there's no life in us. All life has left the valley. Luther, and I've been reading a lot of him, so I apologize, I can't help it. He is so dang good. And so I'm going to have quotes of him probably for the next 10 years because I'm reading lots of him right now. Uh, Luther said, the inner heart of man, our inner heart, is not under our control. Whoever maintains that it is, that it's the nature of the will to fight against the heart or the emotions that you find there, or that it can conquer the heart or the emotions that you find there, whenever reason says, we don't like this, we think we should do this, whenever reason comes along and admonishes us, and reason comes along and decides to do something. He says, if you think, because your reason does that, that you can conquer your heart, he says you've succumbed to an illusion. So I guess just do it just doesn't do it. But what would Jesus do just doesn't do it. There is nothing less under your control than your own heart, he says. Human beings are not lords in their own house. I told you he's good. There's no life in us. Life has left the valley. Dr. Hannah, he's my, you, some of you know, he's like my hero. He was my mentor at, at seminary. Um, he used to tell this story about a preaching professor he knew that on his last assignment, he would take his class and go to one of the local cemeteries. And they would all drive in together. They'd pile out of the car, and he would have them pile out of the car, and he gave them no instructions. They would just walk out and start wandering around in the cemetery, and they would start taking note of the people's lives that were lost there, and they would take in all that's going on. But inevitably, every class, for years and years and years that did this, would try to, you know, intuitively, you would be asking yourself, well, I wonder what the purpose of this project is. I wonder what the purpose of this preacher's field trip is. 
inevitably, all of us would come to the same conclusion. We'd say something like this, oh, the professor wants to impress upon us the urgency to preach the gospel to the lost. And every class and every student was absolutely wrong. What he would do at the end, he would just say, he'd whistle or he'd whatever the professor did, blue, and they would come together, they'd pile in the cars, and right before they got in the cars, he would just stop them and he would say, your hearers are like these people here. And you have not and will not ever learn to preach until you preach to the tombstone. Life has left the valley. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Then he said to me, prophesy, that means preach. Preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. So, Ezekiel said, I preached as I was commanded, and as I preached, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And bone came together, bone against bone. In other words, folks, this is the whole point. Life is not inside out. Life is outside in. This is absolutely crazy, is this not? It's crazy. Ezekiel is told to speak to bones, but bones can't hear. They're dead. And that's the point. Because what we're seen in this valley of bones is something absolutely extraordinary. We are seeing the central image of the whole Bible. What we are seeing is that we're not talking about an inside-out power. We're talking about an outside-in power. We're talking about outside-in life. We're talking about outside-in healing. We're talking about outside-in reaching. We're talking about outside-in renewing. We're talking about outside-in forgiving, outside-in justifying, outside-in sanctifying, even on that last day. It's an outside-in glorifying. There's no such thing as an inside-out power. There are only valleys and bones. Is the gospel enough? Well, it depends. It depends upon your view of valleys and bones. So what is this outside-in power? At first, Ezekiel didn't see it. Do you see that? He heard it. I mean, listen to this. As I preached, there was a sound, a rattling, and bones came together, bone against bone. This is phenomenal. Can you imagine him? He's in there. I have this picture in my study above where I prepare sermons of Ezekiel preaching. And behind him in various stages of, of coming to life are bones and bodies while he's preaching. Can you imagine? First he says, 
Can these bones live? And he gives this lame answer because it's this answer that you don't want to be wrong because you know you're talking to God. So you say something like, well, only you know, God. And that's a smart thing to say in hindsight, right? I mean, that's what we do. Will my child live? God, you know. Will my neighbor live? God, you know. So you imagine he goes, what do you want me to do? Preach. Okay. Thus, click. Thus saith, click, click. I guarantee you he got into his preaching right then and there. Can you imagine? I wish I could hear that. Every preacher wishes they could hear that. Sometimes I see it. Sometimes I see it. Click, 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 rattle, rattle. What is this outside in power? Words. And that's why Paul says, I'm sorry, y'all, but to everybody else, but the foolish people in this building, that's foolish. Words, words of life, words of power, words of healing, words of light. In other words, good news words, gospel words, Jesus words. So what is God saying to us through this powerful vision, y'all? What's God saying to Redeemer right now, here and now, to you, wherever you're at, and whatever level of boneness you're in? Here's what he's saying. He's saying to you personally, and he's saying to us as leaders, and he's saying to us as a church, and he's saying it to us as pastors, he's saying it to the, to the moms, he's saying it to the brokenhearted, he's saying this to every single one of us. My gospel words are enough for you. They're enough. Jesus is enough. So we're not going to get distracted with a church with a five-ring spiritual circus. Who are you, Redeemer? We are about the gospel. We are about good news, not good advice. Good advice will raise no one. In fact, it will just accelerate the decay. Just make us all deader and dustier. This is who we are. We are about good news, not good advice. This is who we are. We are about building our messy lives around Jesus and his salvation. This is who we are. We are about reaching a messy city and a messy central Texas and a messy beyond with the good news of Jesus Christ. We are about an outside-in power, not an inside-out power, because there is no such thing. There's only an outside-in power. 
You know what's fascinating? There's so many fascinating things in this. I have preached this three times. Every time it's been different because there's so much in here. Uh, did you see that God calls Ezekiel son of man? Do you know what the number one way that Jesus referred to himself in all the Bible when he was in the Gospels was he called himself the son of man? It's his number one self-referent. Not Lord, not Savior, not son of David, not God, son of man. Isn't that fascinating? That in the central image of what Christianity is all about, God calls the central player son of man. And then years later, the better son of man shows up. And God asks him, can these bones live? And unlike Ezekiel, Jesus doesn't hesitate. Oh, yeah, they can live. And the interviewer goes, why? Why can they live? How can they live? And Jesus says, because I go into the valley. I become their bones on the cross. I'm their life. Can these bones live? You're darn right they live. Because I live. 